Today is um, Proverbs 15, verse 26, but the words of the pure are pleasant. And hearing that scripture come out of the, that pure little heart, that was terrific. Um, let's pray before we get into the word today. Lord, um, we've, we've been studying your word about heaven and the afterlife, which means that we wander into the topic of, of death. And uh, Lord, I just pray that, um, first off, I want to thank you that your word is full of life. And I, I still, I ask God for you to, to comfort hearts today when we talk about, although we won't center on that topic, it comes up, so just comfort us, Lord. And I pray, God, about um, um, ignorance, the, just the misunderstandings. Lord, just scatter it, I pray, and replace it with light and hope. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we um, visited, and one of the things that we talked about was uh, some of the false beliefs that cultures have had, including the, the, the Greeks and the Romans. And uh, we talked about a Greek god named Thanatos and um, how people hated him and he hated people. And people will, would try all kinds of ways to cheat Thanatos, to cheat death. And uh, there was one legend about a man who was walking through his town and he came face to face with death. And um, the two passed each other, didn't say a word, but death had this look of surprise as he walked by this man in this city. And um, um, so the young man, kind of a little shaken by the encounter, goes to this older sage that he knew, and he tells him all about it. He says, what does this mean? And the older man said to him, you know, I, I, think, I think death is going to call on you tomorrow. This is a creepy story, isn't it? It gets creepier, okay? So he says, I, what, do I, what do I do? He says, the, 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 the sage says, you leave town now. And so get on your horse and go. Just go as far as you can. So he got on his horse and he rode all evening and all through the night and all the way until the next morning. It was a very, very distant town. And as he got into this town, he felt, you know, that, that had to accomplish. And uh, he was just relieved and... and uh, got off his horse, and just as he was settling down, he felt a tap on his shoulder, and he turned, and there he was, um, death. And he said to him, excuse me, I've come for you today. And the young man, who was so surprised, said, but I thought I saw you yesterday in my town. And death said to him, that's why I was so surprised, because I'd been told to find you and come for you today in this city. And um, it's kind of a creepy story, and, uh, but it's kind of the kind of legend that would go with that kind of a belief system. I don't know how you feel about that. You know, it's like it's pretty hard to cheat death. You, we think sometimes we can cheat death or defer it. I just don't know about that. Um, what I'm going to share with you is just this is a scripturally based personal opinion. I look at Psalm 139, one of my absolute favorite psalms. And there's a, I think you get down to about verse 15 or 16, and the psalmist is, is talking to God, and he says, all of my days, you knew all of my days were written in your book. You knew them all before there was one of them. And I read that passage, and I think, okay, Terry, you have a number, and God has them already written down. There's a number. And, you know, when the, it was three days ago, two days ago, one day ago, today's the day, God's going to say, Terry, come on. And that's the number. And I wonder, I wonder if we can do anything to change that number. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I just don't know the answer to that question. I think as Christians, it's really, we commonly talk about um, 
how to live a Christian life. It's a good thing for us to talk about because we should learn how to live a Christian life and make a difference for us, good difference. But it's, it's, it's rare for us to have the discussion about how a Christian or have a Christianly or a, um, a Christian dying. But it's a face that virtually all of us will face unless Jesus tarries, right? I mean, we don't have anybody here that's a thousand years old, right? Some of I felt a thousand years old when I got out of bed this morning, but I'm not. Anyway, this 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 fact that people just kind of avoid the topic and sometimes we're a little bit ignorant about it is a re- good reason why Paul felt it was necessary to teach about it to dispel this 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 ignorance that was so prevalent in that culture. And uh, our passage we've been in in First Thessalonians verse thirteen it says, "I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep." And last, ta- last week we talked about some of the superstitious thinking of the Greeks and the Romans and how that superstition had influenced their thinking and, um, so, and how it can also influence ours. So the big question is, how do we, as New Testament believers, know with assurance? How do we know that we know that we know what's going to happen? And Paul comes, okay, my watch is loose because my granddaughter was playing with it during worship. I should just take it off. Is that okay? It's distracting me now. Um, now, now I've made sure it distracted you too. So um, anyway, so um, Paul comes in in verse 15 of this passage, and he, he says this little thing, you, just, I love this, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. The only way that we can ever you know, pierce beyond this veil of death and know, you know what's going to happen and have assurance is it comes, it's not going to be by human superstition that we'll get it. And it's not going to be by what we can imagine because stuff I imagine isn't all that good. But it's going to come by divine revelation because the word of the Lord is what will give us assurance. So we're going to spend our time in the word of the Lord today. It's certainly a topic we should deal with because Hebrews 9.27 reminds us that it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So um, every single day, just so that you know, just every single day, 365,000 people on our planet die. There's a clock you can get on the web and it statistically will tell you people being dying and people being born and uh, that's about that's over 15,000 people every hour die that's okay I kept going nerd 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 down to four people every second somewhere on the earth it's the it's their last moment but every single same day 151,600 people are born that's uh, almost two every second. So still, it's, 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 it's a lot of people. And governments around us are facing a relatively new challenge because the population is so large and the number of people that are dying is so large. Where do we bury all these people? It's a real problem, and uh, many places are running out of space. And so here are some of the things that are going on out there in the world. Okay, this is, I don't spend all my study time doing this, but I confess, I go off on these things. Okay, in Tokyo, where... Property is at an absolute premium. Um, they have um, a high-rise graveyard. Instead of you, it, ground is too valuable, so we go up. The air is free, apparently. And so um, here's what's going on in this picture. This is at a high-rise graveyard, and you bury your loved one in a casket, and they're in a specially controlled. Um, okay, hold, just keep both pictures there, if you would. Um, or can you go back to the first one? If you can do that or not. But um, it's a very carefully controlled building, and so the person goes in a casket and then inside of a steel box, and it's got labels and gears, and the box is a, the building is a big giant warehouse, and so when you go to visit your loved one's grave, you're not wandering in a graveyard looking for the tombstone. You go into a booth, 
and you insert your card with a magnetic strip, the computer knows who you are and where your loved one is. And somewhere in the bowels of the building, a thing grabs and pulls and conveyor belts and lifts. And in a while, in the booth that you are in, a door opens up and there's the box and whatever inscription, and the computer will bring up their picture and their favorite song and whatever information you've given them, and you have visited them <laughs> only in Japan, and I think well, they're kind of ahead of the curve. The next picture is, um, and in fact, it's more common in Japan for people to be cremated for the very same reason, and so um, the very same thing is going on where they have very, very high-tech I don't know if that's called, what's it called when you, is it a mausoleum? Whatever it is, very, very high-tech places where they inter the remains of uh, cremated loved ones, same kind of a thing. And um, it's, here it's backlit by LEDs or whatever, I, I don't know. Can't tell if it's a nuclear power plant or a graveyard. But either way, it's kind of, kind of interesting. And uh, so that's one way where they deal with it. Brazil, on the other hand, has the world's tallest cemetery and of course it's a building, it's a high-rise building, and capable of handling over 35,000 individual graves. And um, of course you have to pay to leave a loved one here, and the rate that you would pay for a spot in this particular graveyard ranges between $6,000 and $21,000 US, about, depending on the view. <laughs> True fact, depending on where in the building determines <laughs> the cost. You know, if the day comes, honey, and you happen to be to bury me, and somebody find the cheapest spot in the basement, that is not going to be, my view will not be what is out this window. <laughs> Whatever, just the cheapest spot anyway. So, I mean, I think the bigger problem for, our, obviously this is important to people. It's a big problem for culture, um, where to bury people when they die. But the real issue, the real priority ought to be, where did that person go? not where did their flesh get buried. So today we're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the same passage as last week. And this passage is a very, very common uh, passage. I use it in funeral services. It's very, very common because it's full of comfort. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Here I come! It's going to be great. With the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. That shout, nobody knows what that shout is. One possibility this is just a possibility, it's, a, it's just a possibility, is you're going to hear your name. All of us at once. I'm going to hear, Terry, maybe. I love that thought. Anyway, get up here. <laughs> It'll be good. It's not the go to your room shout, it's the get up here. For the Lord himself will descend with heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. This passage also describes the moment of the Lord's return, and the church commonly calls it the rapture. And the world kind of mocks this belief, saying, you think you're all going to be flying in the air and so forth? And I would just suggest to you the miraculous is something that God is in the business of. But I don't want to, to just stop there. I would just say this. If you're God and you're going to choose a moment to come back for your church and you're going to raise the dead and grab those who are alive at that moment, what other way can you do it? 
I guess you could wait until the very last Christian dies. I guess that'd be another approach. That wasn't God's plan. He thought that this was better. So um, anyway, so when I do funerals, um, you know, I share this passage and another passage, and I look back at the faces of people, captive audience, you know, and um, there's all kinds of emotions going on in the room. But I share a passage like this, and it's interesting, the reactions that I get. I mean, I'll often see people smiling, you know, or nodding, or, or people saying, yeah, that's right, or, you know, out loud. And it's this truth is meaningful to them. They're connecting to the truth in these passages. They're filled with hope. They can be filled with comfort, even though they may be suffering terrible sorrow at the same moment. They're okay in their sorrow because they have hope. But other people in the same crowd, you know, I can look out and, and, and I can see this blank, sometimes maybe even hopeless look. You know, some people are in just absolute despair. These truths just aren't connecting. They just, there's no connection to them. Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> the truth is, you're going to be there when it happens. In fact, more important than that, you'll be there after it happens. You'll be somewhere. And some people are skittish because they just don't have the kind of assurances that we're going to talk about today. So in this passage, there are four, four truths that will bring confidence and assurance to a Christian regarding death. So um, the death for the believer, that's who we're talking about here. The first thing is the, the, the assurance a Christian has at their death is based upon redemption. So we look at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do you believe that? Do, do you believe that Jesus died and rose again? Because everything else eternal is attached to that, that belief. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. In that verse, that verse, Paul lays out the irreducible core of the gospel. It's, that's boiled down to its core. And it's, it's, this is the gospel, and it's at its core. What's the gospel? The gospel basically is that Jesus died, he was buried, and he got back up, rose, rose out of the grave, rose from the dead. He, he, he died buying our redemption. You know, he died to secure our salvation, and then he rose from the dead. Did you catch, if you catch what's going on there, it's not good people who go to heaven. I mean, there will be pretty nice people there. But it's not good people that go to heaven. It's saved, redeemed people that go to heaven. People who think that they'll end up in heaven because they're good, they're not going to be there. They're not. If, if, if they think they're going to go to heaven because they are good, they will not be there. People go to heaven because Jesus is good. And, you know, a sense of justice sometimes that would cause us to calculate what level of goodness is required to get to heaven, or people that think that they're, that they're good enough, they've completely missed the point of Jesus' death and resurrection. Why would God send his son? Why would God allow his son to pay that terrible price? If there was a, another way, if we could do it on our own, it just wouldn't. And people who trust in eternity based upon um, leaning into their own goodness instead of leaning into Jesus' goodness are going to miss heaven entirely. And I just plead with all of you who hear this, don't make that mistake. So, so this is how we know that we're going to conquer death. The one who said he would do it, did it. 
He actually accomplished it. He predicted his death. He, he predicted his resurrection. Then he died. And then he rose. He did everything he said. So when Jesus makes a promise, you know, we're gonna con- he says that we're going to conquer death. When he makes a promise, it means something. It carries weight. If Jesus had made that promise and didn't get out of that grave, the rest of the promises would be kind of like, okay, whatever. But he, he did it. Jesus, there's a passage where Jesus is talking to uh, Martha in John chapter 11. And these are the words of Jesus. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, there's that word again, believes. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then this thing, he looks her in the eye. Do you believe me? Do you believe this? Do you, <laughs> Jesus asks the question, and it's just hanging in the air right this moment in this room. Do you believe this? So I ask the question, do you believe this? Because your eternity rests on this and nothing else. The idea that eternity rests on Jesus plus anything else is a suggestion that assaults what he did. It says Jesus did pretty good, but not quite enough. And um, I ask the question, do you believe this? Because your eternity rests on it. So Paul writes also in 1 Corinthians 15, and, I, and I'm going to give you the contemporary English version, which is a paraphrase, but it's really clear here, it really helps. If our hope in Christ is good only for this life, we are worse off than anyone else. But Christ has been raised to life, and he makes us certain that others will also be raised to life. In other words, his resurrection is the proof and the pledge of our resurrection. It's going to happen because it's already happened with him. In 1506, Christopher Columbus died, um, and I will butcher the name of the town where he lived. Vialdi, sorry, I don't speak Spanish. I should learn it. Then I could have said this correctly. There's this monument to Christopher Columbus. Um, and, um, and in this monument, and would you leave this one up for a while, Amy? Because I'm going to talk about it a bit. There's a picture. If you look down in the corner, there's a lion tearing away at a word. I guess Chris is up on top or something. I'm not quite too sure. Pretty proud to be up on top of a pile like that. But anyway, there he is, and there's this lion tearing this word off. And um, this word that he's tearing off, it, it, the, the entire phrase at one point was the motto, the national motto of the nation of Spain. Now, before Christopher Columbus in 1492 sailed the ocean blue, um, the Spanish believed that they had reached the end of the world. They, they thought, you know, we've seen the outer limits. We've discovered all that was discoverable. And so they, the, the motto that goes around this deal, which was the national motto, was ne plus ultra, the Latin phrase, ne plus ultra, which means no more beyond, roughly, no more beyond. Don't go sailing out there because there's no more beyond there. We've figured it out. There's no more beyond. But after Chris made his famous discovery, um, they learned, hey, there's, there's actually a lot more. There's way more beyond. We were wrong before. And so what's going on in this monument is the lion is tearing off the first word of the motto, the nay, which means no. So now the motto reads, plus ultra, plus, plus ultra. There's more beyond. There's more beyond. There is, way more beyond. Walter Scott said, is death the last sleep? Oh no, it is the final awakening. 
Jesus died and he rose from the grave. So we have assurance based upon redemption. Second thing that gives us assurance is that death will be marked by relationship. Relationship. If you're a believer, you've got a relationship with God through his son, Jesus. And that relationship survives our death. It lives right through our death. In fact, it's going to get better. I mean, this passage we've been reading makes references to Christians who have died, and it calls them, verse 14, it says, those who sleep in Jesus, verse 16, the dead in Christ. And then these, these people are being defined as people who have a relationship with Jesus. You know, sleep in Jesus, dead in Christ. So you're asleep in Jesus, you're dead in Christ. And then verse 17, so we will always be with the Lord. This passage highlights the qualifier for heaven, and that is relationship with Jesus. The relationship gives us assurance. It, gives, it, gives, it selects us for heaven. So, you know, at the same time that this relationship is going on, there's death creates separation. You know, that's why we weep. When somebody dies, there's a separation. And um, there's a separation from the body when the person dies. Their soul is immediately, Scripture says, taken into God's presence. There's consciousness and there's awareness. We spent time on that last week. But their body stays behind. There's, there's a separation between their spirit and the body. There's also a separation from loved ones, from friends, from parents, from others. But there will never be a separation for the believer. There will never be a separation from relationship with God. In fact, I believe that that relationship is going to get deeper and more intimate and better over time. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5. And I love how Jesus talks about this. And this particular passage I use in every single memorial service. John John 14, 1 through 6. And this is Jesus talking. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This passage is all about relationship. It's not about geography. It captures me. You know, he doesn't refer to heaven in geographic terms, but in terms of relationship. My father's house. Come to my father's house. You don't have to know where it is. You just have to know who belongs to it or who it belongs to. You know, the, the question here isn't, where is heaven? What are we going to be doing after there? Am I going to get to watch football? Will there be pets in heaven? I guess there will be cats because the lion is going to lay down with the lamb. I confess that. <laughs> I don't know beyond lions whether there will be any other cats there or not. Don't ask me. I have an answer. It's an opinion. It's no. You know, there might be them. There might be a cat there. I don't know. Just don't know. <laughs> there will definitely be dogs in heaven. We, everybody knows that. All dogs go to heaven. Anyway, so, okay. Um, but the central issue here isn't where or what. It's about whom. My father's house. Dwight Moody said this. He said, it's not the jeweled walls and pearly gates that are going to make heaven so. It's being with God in his house. And I believe that there's an, a different opportunity than we have today for real intimacy with God. You know, maybe you've experienced worship where 
you have just sensed the Spirit of God settle upon you and around you, and you know that God is just miraculously moving, and, and I, I, I get led that way here so often. And I, I, you know, and, or maybe you've had a devotional time somehow where you connect with God, and the Lord has spoken something to you, and a peace came upon you, and a confidence, and, and you, you feel so close. And Jesus made promises that wherever two or three are gathered, I'm in the midst of them. And, and he also promised, lo, I'm with you always till the end of the age. And, and, but real, total intimacy with God, I don't think can ever be reached. No full satisfaction with God can never be reached until then. Psalmist said in Psalm 17, I will be fully satisfied for I, when I see you face to face. So I want to just spend a couple of minutes on this now. I'll spend more about this in future weeks because we're going to be talking about heaven for a while. About the moment of death. I want to just talk for a minute about the moment of death. I think the best description in the Bible, this is my opinion, I think one of the best descriptions about death is in James 2. Here's what James said. He said, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Now that scripture always gets talked about in the reference of faith. But there's two topics going on in this sentence. James defines death as the body without the spirit is dead. So what happens you know, when a Christian dies today and their body remains? So what happens, you know, so they're somewhere, but there's still a body. Their spirit is gone and goes to be in the presence of the Lord. What's that state like? What's going on there? What's, what will we be actually, what will our existence be like in those moments? Well, um, Theologians who love to give big weird terms to that, they call that the intermediate state. Okay, I don't know what that means, but that's what theologians call it. They call it the intermediate state. And um, that's a, a completely boring and flat way to describe something that's probably spectacularly wonderful. Um, but they call it, but, but, but this gets cloudy because there's not a whole lot of definitive information in God's word about that state. And like all things theological, since it's not very clearly lined out in the Word of God, there are lots of things being taught out there. Well, I'll just give you a few. These could be correct. There could be a combination. It could vary. I don't know. I'm just going to tell you some of the thinking that's out there, and you can consider this. Some people think that when a Christian dies, now, I'm specifically talking about believers here. Okay, this does not reference people who have rejected God, okay? But when a believer dies, they believe that, um, and, goes, and their spirit goes to be with the Lord, that the Lord gives them some sort of temporary form, um, a temporary body or something. And the thinking is that we need a body so that we can relate to Christ and each other. And that's just one viewpoint. And um, I'm gonna set, say, okay, that's a viewpoint. Set it aside, we'll deal with it later. Other people think that when a Christian dies, their soul, their spirit takes on some functions, like you know, like a body would in in a, in, a, in a bodily form, and that concept comes primarily from um, a passage in Revelation chapter six that describes these souls that are under the altar, and the souls under the altar that it's referring to in that passage are people who have been killed because of their faith during the tribulation period, and um, their souls are awaiting the resurrection from the Lord, and they're under the altar. And the, and, the, and the scripture says, they cry out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our enemies? And so these, these souls are able to articulate, they're able to feel, there's, you know, they're having some abilities like a body would have. And we'll get into more, more into that later too. But the point there is that you'll be fully conscious, and um, also there's opportunities for relationship that are really good. Okay, another viewpoint is the moment you die, that angels escort you into the presence of the Lord. Okay? 
That probably comes from a story that we spent time on last week in Luke chapter 16, where there was a rich man and a beggar named Lazarus. And um, the, the, the scripture says that the beggar died and angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. And maybe you'll, that's what you'll see at the moment of your death. Another possibility is at the moment of death, you will hear Jesus call your name. Terry. Wow. That'll be cool. That would be really, really cool if that's what happens. I mean, and that comes, that, that possibility is suggested in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. You know, that would be very, very cool if, you know, Jesus announces your name as you enter heaven. <laughs> wow. Anyway, okay. Maybe, maybe when, you, when that moment comes, you're going to see Jesus stand in your presence. You're going to see him stand. I mean, I don't mean to worship you, but I mean, you're going to see something because um, when Stephen was being stoned to death, you, you can read about that in Acts chapter 7. Some people got really angry because of the things he said. He said, look, <laughs> to these guys throwing rocks at him, look, I see, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Maybe that's... Anyway, so our assurance is based on redemption. It's based on relationship. And the third truth um, that brings assurance to us believers is that death leads to resurrection. Look at verses 15 and 16. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the resurrection right there. The dead in Christ will rise so when Jesus comes back for the church, which we call the rapture, that's going to be a resurrection moment for dead believers. That's resurrection day. And it's going to be transformation day for all of the believers who haven't died yet and are alive at the moment he comes back. Paul writes a little bit about this in Philippians 3. For our, citizen, for our citizenship, the word there is literally politics, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. <laughs> I don't know if you agree with um, Paul's description of your body, your lowly body, you might not agree with that, but I promise you this, the older you get, the more you'll agree with it. <laughs> and other texts like this. Anyway, and he's going to transform our lowly body into his glorious body. You know, <laughs> you ever see extreme makeovers on TV? It's like, okay, I don't watch them either. <laughs> but this is going to be an ultimate extreme makeover. Your body is going to be totally changed at the resurrection. And it says here in our text that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. This is a shout of announcement, you know, that, of, of, of what's going on. And, 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 it's, and everyone around it's going to hear it. So here's the sequence at the coming of the Lord for the church at that moment we call the rapture. First thing that's going to happen is all of the people who have died in past history, who were believers and followers of Christ, at that moment they're going to experience a resurrection. They're going to be joined to this newly remade body. And immediately after that, and it's probably almost simultaneous, will be a total physical transformation of believers who are alive. 
my immature body, you know, thinks, you know, what if, what if I'm in the shower and my head's covered with soap? You know, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. It's like, it's like, you know, make sure that every day when you go out, you got on nice, clean, new underwear in case the paramedics have to dig you out of the car or something. You don't want to be embarrassed because you got boxers with like Minnie and Mickey holding hands or something. Okay. <laughs> You should have never bought me those boxers. <laughs> you don't have to worry about whether you got shampoo on your head because when that moment comes, you're going to be redone anyway. It's going to be amazing. Not saying anything wrong with you the way you are today. I'm just saying it's nothing compared to what the plans are that the Lord has. I has not seen nor ear heard. It's it's amazing. It's going to be amazing. And so with a shout in this moment, the Lord is descending and the dead are raising and the saints are coming up and you and I and, and all this, it's, and, and, and it's crazy. We're going to explore more of that later, but 1 Corinthians 15 is going to kind of help us a little bit with our understanding of how, how to manage these truths in our mind because Paul writes this. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which means die. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We need that sign over the nursery. <laughs> okay. Let's back up. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For this trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So grasp what's going on in these verses. The earth, the sea, are going to start yielding up the dust and the particles of the, all of the believers who have ever died. And then this miracle is going to be happening. It's going to happen really fast. And, um, can you imagine the Pixar version of this? They would botch it for sure. The Lord starts gathering all these particles. It's going to happen so fast and, and starts to transform bodies. A body that will never see death, will never see sickness, will never see pain, will no more disease. And then this really quick trip to heaven, and we're always with the Lord. All of that happening in the twinkling of an eye. And that's a scientists have studied how fast a twinkling of an eye is. It's fast. It's fast. That's the resurrection that we look forward to. Heard the story that I'm sure isn't true about these um, two guys who are raised in the jungles of Indonesia and had never seen a large city before, and they had been led to the Lord by missionaries who had brought them back to New York City. And first time in a big city, they'd never seen an elevator before, and um, they stood in the lobby and they watched two. Um, let's just say women with a lot of life experience get on the elevator and the doors close and they disappear and the numbers go up and come back down. Well, they happen to be having the Miss Universe pageant in the same hotel at the same time and after a couple of minutes, the doors open back up and these two contestants walk out. And they turn and look at each other and said, you know, we've got to get our wives to walk into that machine. <laughs> you don't have to ride in that machine. <laughs> Because all believers are going to have this extreme makeover at the resurrection, at the coming of the Lord. And all of this that I'm describing to you is based upon what has already happened. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he was raised, we are going to be raised. 
and our bodies are going to be raised and absolutely, totally transformed. Okay, verse 17 gives us the fourth truth that brings assurance. Death brings a beautiful reunion. Verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Catch the words, together with them. Who are the them? The them are those who have died and, and, and newly resurrected. Let's, let's just say that the Lord comes back tomorrow. Let's just imagine and say, tomorrow's the day. And all of that instantaneous change occurs, and then you're together with them tomorrow. Monday, July 16th, 11.04. I'm not picking a time, right? I'm just saying, it's going to happen in that moment. No wonder, he says in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. There's going to be a reunion with your father who's in God's presence today or, or with your mother who's in God's presence today or your brothers or your children and your heart has been aching because you miss them so terribly and it broke your heart to, to, to let them go and you're going to see them if they're believers in Jesus Christ and if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You're going to see them. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus has compassion on this woman. Um, this is a story, let's read it. Now, in, now it happened that the day after that he went into a city called Nain and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And he came near the gate of the city and behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. widow. She's got nobody now. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and he said to her, do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin. Okay, He's not supposed to do that. Makes him unclean. Tells you he's the God of authority here. He touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. This guy just touched the coffin. Hold up, what's going on? And he said, young man, I say to you, rise. (laughs) So he who is dead sat up and began to speak. You got the picture here? They got the coffin. He comes up, touches it. They stop. He says, hey, get up. And up comes (laughs) this dead man. Wow! And he presented him to his mother. Here you go. Here's your boy. This is, what a reunion. Here's your son back. Enjoy your life together. Jesus is going to have that same tender ministry in heaven. You know, reuniting families and spouses and friends together. So death is this great separator, but Jesus is this great reuniter. And um, it brings us this question that really is commonly asked a lot. Are we going to recognize each other in heaven? Okay, a lot of questions. I think so. But, um, and some of the questions come from some of the statements that were unclear. Um, one that Jesus made in Matthew 22, for the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God. I mean, we'll discuss that one also at another time. But um, there's another passage in Matthew 17 where Jesus, is, Jesus was transfigured and, and Moses and Elijah show up. And the disciples, several of the disciples uh, in, front of, are in front of this, they see it, Peter, James, and John are there. And Peter, James, and John recognize Elijah and Moses. Now, these guys had been dead for like 900 years. And they recognized and knew who they were. And I'm pretty sure there wasn't a stick-on that said, hello, my name is Moses. (laughs) Right? There was probably no name tags involved there. And I doubt that Jesus said, "Uh, oh, hey, 
let me just take a minute here. I think it's the polite thing to do. Um, you know, Peter, Moses, Moses, Peter. I don't think he went through that. They just had some sort of intuitive knowledge. They knew who it was. And um, I believe that, that it was, I don't know if it was, you know, how it was intuitive or it was supernatural, but somehow it worked out. And I believe, in, I believe this is my belief, that in heaven, our knowledge is going to be greatly expanded. It's like, it's like we are going to immediately know those who we've known and loved our whole life. We're going to pick up right where we left off. And I think you will also know people that you've never met, but that you've heard of. And I just think we're going to know that. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers from way back when, um, long dead, but just a terrific preacher, was answering this very question. And his answer makes me chuckle because sometimes he's pretty curt. I don't know why it makes me chuckle, but Mr. Spurgeon, will we recognize in heaven, each other in heaven? And his simple answer is, well, do you think when we're in heaven we'll be more stupid than we are now? <laughs> you snide people. You think that's funny. It was a serious question. You should be more gentle. Anyway, no. You know, no, no, we're not going to be more stupid than we are now. Okay. How, just how stupid are we? I don't know, Charles Spurgeon. Thanks for pointing that out. There's an author, um, <laughs> a Christian author named Philip Yancey, and he compares death to the process of birth. And it's pretty imaginative. And I'm going to read this to you. And what we're going to do is view birth from the viewpoint of the baby being born. Okay? Each of our individual deaths, I'm reading now from Yancey, each of our individual deaths can be seen as a birth. Imagine what it would be like if you had full consciousness as a fetus and could remember those sensations. Your world is dark, safe, and secure. You're bathed in a warm liquid, cushioned from shock, you do nothing for yourself, you are fed automatically, and a murmuring heartbeat assures you that someone larger than you fills all of your needs. Your life consists of simple waiting. You're not sure what you wait for, but any change seems far away and scary. You meet no sharp objects, there's no pain, no threatening adventure. It's a fine existence, but one day you feel a tug. The walls are falling in on you. Those soft cushions are now pulsing and beating against you, crushing you downwards. Your body is bent, doubled, your limbs twisted and wretched. You're, you're falling upside down. For the first time in your life, you feel pain. You're in a sea of rolling matter. There's more pressure, almost too intense to bear. Your head is squeezed flat, and you're pushed harder and harder into a dark tunnel. Oh, the pain, the noise, the pressure. You hurt all over. You hear a groaning sound. An awful sudden fear rushes through you. It's happening. Your world is collapsing. You are sure it's the end. Then you see a piercing, blinding light and cold, rough hands pull at you and a painful slap. It actually says wah here. Congratulations, you've just been born. He goes on. Death is like that. On this end of the birth canal, it seems fearsome, pretentious, and full of pain. Death is a scary tunnel, and we are being sucked toward it by a powerful force. I think that's a brilliant description of death. Because to a child about to be born, birth has to seem pretty terrible. I mean, it's cold, it's foreign, it's painful. And so it, so it is in death. I mean, so what seems painful actually gives birth 
to this immediate, full, and satisfying relationship with Christ, to, to the resurrection of our body, and to the reunion with people that we miss so dearly. No wonder. No wonder God says, comfort one another with these words. To be continued. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, as we consider eternity in heaven and what it takes to get there, and for almost everybody who has ever lived, it takes in part an experience that we call death. But God, we're not hopeless. We're filled with hope. We have every reason to have assurance and hope. God, thank you for that truth. And I, I pray, Lord, that anybody here who doesn't personally know Jesus by, by relationship and savioring, Savior relationship, that those would receive him into their hearts and, and live, Lord, that their faith would let them do that today and they would come to know Jesus and be born again so that they would never see total, ultimate, eternal separation from you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.